Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Georgia Pritchett on her new memoir, My Mess is a Bit of a Life. Georgia Pritchett is a multi-award winning comedy and drama writer. Her writing and production credits include Veep, Have I Got News For You, Smack The Pony, Miranda, The Thick Of It and many more. And she is currently a writer and co-executive producer on HBO's critically acclaimed show Succession, now in its third season. She has five Emmys, five Writers Guild Awards, a Golden Globe, a BAFTA and a Trampoline in Proficiency Level 1 Certificate. Although, if you want to know the exciting story about that, it's not actually in this book. I don't seem to remember, but uh, that might have to be the sequel. Um, Georgia is the author of the fantastic memoir, My Mess is a Bit of a Life, Adventures in Anxiety, which we're going to be talking about today. Georgia, welcome to Little Atom. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. So, first of all, I want to talk about the format of this book. It starts and ends with you in a therapy session, wherein this you know, therapist suggests you might like to, to write down some stuff because you're having trouble articulating it in the actual session. And so the book basically is a series of vignettes, roughly chronological order over the course of your life, starting with your early childhood. So tell us something about why this format. Yes, I wish I could say it was a, a clever choice, but I think I was just embracing my shortcomings as a writer. I've got quite a short attention span. And I think really I've been I've been a scriptwriter for so long that I think when I was I think my brain just frames things in the scenes really. So in a way it's it's a kind of collection of 
scenes from my life. And I'm fascinated with how memory works. And, uh, you know, once you start remembering something kind of other doors open, it leads to other memories. And it's amazing the things you do and don't remember. And while I was writing it, I read a really interesting thing um, that said that basically we only ever remember anything once. And then after that, we remember remembering it. And that kind of fascinated me. And and so really, in a way, we're all constantly writing our own memoirs because we're kind of honing and refining the uh, the stories that sort of make up our life and our experience. So yeah, it kind of starts quite impressionistically, I think, you know, when we're little, our memories uh, can be quite simple, you know, we notice things, but we don't understand the bigger picture. So it's sort of left for the reader to kind of join the dots and work out what was going on quite a lot of the time. And so that means presumably then that you didn't necessarily have, you're not looking at sort of like diaries from childhood and things here. These are sort of impressionistic memories from a distance. Exactly. Yes. No, no diaries. Um, just, just sort of genuinely what I remembered. And, you know, and it's interesting that very sort of trivial moments can make just a, as big an impact on you as sort of moments where you kind of brush up against a bit of history or something. It all, I think, as you're sort of experiencing, it all seems equally kind of important or impactful Um and you, yeah, it's only in retrospect that you kind of judge what was sort of less important or more important or, or less exciting or more exciting. You grew up in a very literary household, shall we say, a somewhat bohemian household, maybe in some ways as well. And it's not obvious from a very young age that you are also going to be a writer, I'd say. No. I mean, I think, you know, I'm lucky in that I came, as you say, I come from a background where writing was an option, you know, <laughs> and and I think I'm very fortunate in that. And I think I definitely wanted to be a writer. I, I think in some ways, that's the one thing I have never felt confused about. That was kind of clear. And I was sort of speaking stories into a tape player before I could write, but mainly, um, well, pretty much exclusively stories about budgies falling out of their nests and not being able to find their way home. It's a, it's a niche genre that um, hasn't taken off quite in the way I'd hoped. But I think that, yeah, I thought, well, I can't write books because I can't do prose and I don't know enough adjectives and I don't like describing things and I can't be a journalist uh, because I don't care enough about facts so I couldn't kind of see how how I could be a writer and then um, uh, my mum actually suggested or pointed out that I loved watching and listening to comedy programs and could probably very annoyingly recite a lot of the sketches that I liked and that maybe you know dialogue was the thing that interested me and yeah, that's what I went for, and I'm, I absolutely love writing dialogue. The book is subtitled Adventures in Anxiety, and you write brilliantly, I think, about how your anxieties have manifested themselves right across your life. But let's talk about when they first manifest themselves in your early childhood. Yeah, I can't really remember a time I wasn't worrying about something. All my early memories are about being anxious, just worrying about everything. And in fact, there is... A photo in the book. I my parents got very excited because they were told that I'd had my photograph taken at school and it was going to be on the cover of a book. 
And then when we got sent the book, it was a pic. I wasn't posing at all. It was a just me in my natural state. But the book was called Learning to Adjust. And it was me just looking incredibly agonized in a very unpleasant yellow smock and green flares, very highly flammable outfit. And that was just my natural sort of state was just looking like someone who wasn't adjusting very well and someone who, you know, had a lot on uh, her tiny mind and can we talk about the nosebleeds oh yes 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 thank you for bringing us up one of my more attractive <laughs> traits is that being too sort of british and repressed and bad at expressing my feelings in in a normal way that when I sort of have feelings of extreme joy or extreme sadness, my body expresses that by basically I have a nosebleed. And so I've I've had nosebleeds at sort of various key moments of my life that have been pretty spectacular. But yeah, I mean, I, it's just a perfectly ordinary way to express emotions as far as I'm concerned. It seems like in, in some ways it must almost act like a, like a useful get out clause as well, something that will <laughs> immediately engender sympathy in somebody else. In an awkward situation. <laughs> yeah, sometimes sympathy, mainly just sort of horror or <laughs> concern for soft furnishings, but you know, very occasionally sympathy. I wanted to talk about some of the um, some of the excerpts in the book, some of the incidents that happen during your childhood and, and adolescence, I guess, before in the second half we'll get on to your comedy career in more detail. But um first of all. Tell us about, well, I'm going to say very little about these things because obviously I want you to tell us the stories. But first of all, if I say Action Man. <laughs> yes, thank you for bringing up a, a key moment of the suffering I had to endure as a child. So, I mean, this book is a sort of unflinching portrait of uncooperative pets. So all of my pets really didn't want to be anywhere near me. And um, that was disappointing. So, um my brother had a lot of action men, so I decided maybe, you know, if I had an action man, that would be a good idea because he wouldn't, he wouldn't, as an inanimate object, presumably wouldn't be able to run away from me. So I asked him to give me one of his action men and uh, he gave me an old action man of his that had one leg. But being an ungrateful child and a body fascist. I wanted an action man with two legs. So I kept dropping hints to my family that I, you know, I was desperate for an action man, a new action man, because mine couldn't get around. And when my birthday arrived, I was incredibly excited that I would be finally be getting this longed for action man. But instead, what I got was uh, from my grandfather, he had made a little wheelchair out of wood so that my action man could now get around. And that was one of those moments where expectation, the, the gap between expectations and reality was, was a bit of a wake-up call to me. And of course, I was terribly disappointed. And now, in retrospect, I think that poor man spent weeks trying to fashion wheels out of wood and this little tiny wheelchair and what an amazing thing to do but at the time I just thought oh my goodness adults are just idiots. There's a, a terrifying incident with your brother when you're walking to school if that's enough for me to um, say. Yes this was we used to walk to school together um, hand in hand and the same sort of route every day to the bus stop and then on to school and this one day there was a kind of 
commotion going on and we could hear car horns and shouting and there was a man sitting on the roof of a car and as we sort of crossed the road uh, away from him he jumped off the roof and grabbed my brother and dragged him into the road and held a knife to his throat and I just remember I think I probably was about six or something like that at the time Um, and I just remember knowing that I wasn't allowed to go on the road without if I wasn't holding my brother's hand but I couldn't hold my brother's hand because he was in the middle of the road so I was kind of on tippy toes on the very edge of the curb calling for him and um, eventually the yeah the police came and we kind of ran away and um, went home and uh, told my parents and ended up we ended up having to go to the police station where we were sort of given a, a tour of the police station ending with the police horses where, and then one of the police horses did this sort of historically long wee while we all stood there watching and it just in retrospect seemed very symbolic of the whole event when something difficult happens and you don't really have the, the words or the capacity to kind of discuss it. So, yes, it just sort of, I think that the horse weeing made almost a bigger impact on me than, than my brother being held at knife point. But, yeah, maybe that's something I need to think about a bit more. And there's another incident that you are vaguely adjacent to, which I presume is the um, the notorious New Cross fire. Yes, yeah. Well, that's, you know, when I was saying earlier about, you you know, you can, something quite trivial can happen, like a horse weeing. And then other times you, you do sort of get tangled up into history. And um, I went to school in Deptford and the uh, house almost opposite the school was the house involved in the Deptford fire. And it was, in fact, um, one of the Yvonne's birthday party. Uh, and she went to the school and she and many of her friends died in the fire and I suppose what struck me looking back not just on that incident but on other incidents was the kind of shocking and casual racism that was just part of everyday life so you know as you know nothing nothing was done about that it wasn't really investigated um there was a suggestion by the authorities that other black people started the fire because they weren't allowed into the party. And just the whole handling of it was really uh, appalling. And, you know, the house stood empty and kind of burnt out for years and years. I'd pass it every day on the way to school as a kind of reminder of this terrible uh, miscarriage of justice. And now I think there's a, a plaque on the sort of rebuilt house, but it was, you know, a terrible, terrible tragedy. And, nothing was done and yeah I was just you know one of a a sort of witness to that just because I went to the school where a few of the uh, victims went. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Georgia Pritchett and we're talking about her memoir, My Mess is a Bit of a Life, Adventures in Anxiety. And Georgia, I said when we got into the second half, I wanted to get on to your comedy career. And let's begin right at the beginning. And you're one of those people that submitted work to the um, the, the BBC radio show Weekending, which had this at the time, this like insane <laughs> in which they would literally just like, you know, homeless people would turn up off the street and go to meetings. Yeah. yeah. I know it would never happen now. And it was incredible. Um, yeah. We just stroll in uh, and sort of talk with the producer about what stories they would cover it would just be a short meeting and that you know when I started going that as you say it was a mixture between pretty eccentric people who perhaps were just coming in to keep warm and then you know people like Stuart Lee and Richard Herring and Harry Hill and Al Murray and you know so a real mixture of people and then you would kind of go home and sort of type up your jokes or your sketches and then bring them in the next day and see you'd find out on a Friday night if when the program went out if you got anything in so I used to go and sit in my brother's car in the cold with a stopwatch because depending on how long your joke or sketch was that sort of dictated how much money you got so it was like eight pounds for a joke and I think it was something ludicrous like 21 whole pounds for a sketch uh yeah amazing riches beyond all comprehension so yeah that was how I got started and so the story of your comedy career in this book the British comedy career in particular we're talking about here we'll get on to the differences in the the American world later on but the story in this book is about you navigating the British comedy world 
fundamentally as a woman, as often the only woman. Yeah, always really the only woman. Um, I mean, I've had a great experience. It's It definitely was difficult being the only woman and, and pretty much the only person who hadn't gone to Oxford or Cambridge. So I didn't need to bother with um, imposter syndrome because I, I basically was an imposter. So... Yeah, I had to, I definitely had to sort of work harder and prove myself and fight to be noticed. But, uh, you know, the, the sort of really sad thing is, is for 25 years, I think, I worked here and was never in a writer's room with another woman. And, yeah, so I, was, I would wonder where everyone was. And um, one of my friends said, he said... Um, you know, well, you know, you're a trailblazer. And I said, well, I'm I'm the exact opposite to a trailblazer. Literally no one's following. I'm repelling people. I'm, I'm making it look so awful. Uh, no one's following. But I think I think things are beginning to change. We, well, we definitely have more women stand-ups. We have more writer-performers, although I would say just that I feel that's come from a place where women have felt they weren't getting interesting enough roles offered to them. So they've sort of actors have turned to writing in order to write themselves better roles like Sharon Horgan or Miranda Hart or Phoebe Waller-Bridge. So that's sort of, you know, that's great, but that's come from a place of of kind of absence, as it were. So, yes, I, I hope things will change, um, but we're still do seem to be very much stuck in the past in terms of comedy being um, a sort of male environment. You talk in the book about how you'll often see the situation where, you know, the men that are commissioning this comedy or or working on this comedy are just these sort of, you know, weird, awkward, anxious men themselves and they just feel comfortable talking to someone else like that. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely come up against sort of overt sexism um, and, you know, I started at a time where Are Women Funny was an actual conversation that people actually had. Um, and But there's also this situation that I've come up against, which I have some sympathy for as a sort of socially inadequate, mumbling, shy person, you know, where it is a very male-dominated environment and a lot of the men are, you know, socially awkward, mumbling people. And they feel more comfortable working with socially awkward, mumbling men. And that's not a hate crime, but it is a problem because then you get women get excluded or a different type of man, you know, a non-white man or a working class man gets excluded. And you just end up with a, a group of people who have very similar life experience and frames of reference are going to write similar things and I think then we all lose out because uh, we don't get the kind of rich array of voices that are out there. So you spend, what did you say, 25 years working in the British comedy industry and never writing with another woman but every now and then you know another woman writer will pass by like ships in the night somewhere at a party or an award ceremony or something and one of the women you talk about in the book is uh, Debbie Barham can you tell us something about her? Yeah she was an incredible writer and she I'd been writing a couple of years when she came along and I was very excited she was very young she started at an incredibly young age 
I think like 16 or something, she came to London. And I sort of thought, great, I'll be working with another woman. But of course, no, we we didn't ever get to work with each other because you don't, you don't need more than one woman working on a show. So it tended to be either I got, if they wanted a woman, either I would get the job or she would get the job. We would not both get the job. But she was very, very prolific, um, very, very talented, incredible woman. And just when I was around people and listening to the way they talked about her, I thought, oh, this is how people talk about me because she was a woman. Her clothes got talked about, her education, her body, her experience, you know, her everything. And... Um, and whether or not that had anything to do with it, she became anorexic and um, and it was, you know, absolutely tragic. Um, she basically died of anorexia at the age of 26 um, and is a, you know, was a desperately sad loss to not just, of course, the comedy world, but to, to all of us. Um, it was it's incredibly sad and she was a, a really fantastically talented person something else you have to deal with over this time as well as any woman in that world would is you describe a terrible incident where you're basically assaulted by um uh, an older comedy legend as you describe them in a lift yeah that i mean everyone's got uh, every woman really does have uh, at least one story and that's that's just one of mine and it was you know, it, I was very young and uh, it was very shocking. And I think the sad thing is when I went for help from the female producer, she kind of literally looked the other way. And I think, unfortunately, that's what so many people did for so long. And um, again, I hope things are changing now. I, I sort of mentioned it in the book because, you know, definitely the at the time, one was encouraged to not speak, not say anything and not cause trouble. But now I sort of feel some responsibility towards women who are in the business or wanting to be in the business and to sort of, you know, say that these things have happened and they've happened to a lot of women, pretty much all women, and that it has to stop. So I, I kind of took that decision to mention it because it's not OK. And I think it's important that... Everyone knows that, not not just women, but men know that. And that if anyone witnesses anything or hears about anything, that they um, that they do something about it. So eventually, you you make the transition into writing on American shows. And as I read out at the beginning, worked on some incredible shows over there. And indeed, looking at things you're going to be working on in the future, there's a, a incredible roster of stuff lined up. And tell us what is so different then about writing for an American show? Yeah, I mean, there's so many differences. Some of them for sure are financial because, you know, there's there's that much more money over there. They can pay for, for lots of writers to sit in a room together. That's a kind of luxury that most shows don't have in this country. But I think there's a difference in attitude as well. You know, when I think about the comedy shows that I've enjoyed growing up, you know, in this country, the women tended to be either the sort of the nags or the slags, either either the nagging sensible wives providing the, the uh, setup lines to the their husband's punchlines or the sort of stupid kind of oversexed 
neighbour or something. Whereas if you look at America, right from the beginning of sitcom, they've had Lucille Ball, they've had Mary Tyler Moore and Rhoda and Roseanne and Ellen, and just they've never had a problem with have, with putting a woman in the lead of a comedy and having her funny. That That's always happened. So they just have a, a different attitude. So, you know, it's fantastic that not only, you know, after 25 years of of writing here, I went to the States and then I was in this writer's room, which was terrifying, by the way. But what was so exciting was there were two other women in the, in the room and they did sort of look like me and talk like me and and um, have sort of similar life experiences. And it was, I, I couldn't get over how pathetically validating that was. It really was astonishing. And just to see yourself reflected back at you is really lovely and really good for your self-esteem and you kind of think oh you know maybe I'm okay and you realize that's what it's like to be a white man every time he walks in any room or turns on the tv or opens a magazine or you know it's great and because they have women in their writers rooms they and they write about women you know you get to write for these fantastic characters women who are not mags or slags you know women who are have the lead roles and have complicated nuanced characters they're not just one thing um so you know writing on veep and writing for you know a comedy legend like julie louis dreyfus is just so thrilling and so incredible i, I just couldn't believe my luck to finish off, can I get you to, to read us a couple of pieces from the book? Yeah, sure. So I will start off, I'll read one that's a, a good example of me as an anxious child, and then I'll read one that's a good example of me as an anxious adult. So this chapter is called Bad News, and uh, this happened when I was about three. One day I arrived at nursery late. All the other children were there. My favourite place on the rug was taken, the one where you could hold a crayon against the radiator and watch while it melted. As I unzipped my anorak, I realised that everyone in the room was singing, we're going to the zoo. This sent me into total panic. I absolutely, on no account, wanted to go to the zoo with other children. Not now. I'd had no warning. I wasn't prepared. I had the wrong socks on. Also, since when did people deliver horrific news in the form of a song? It seemed inappropriate. Could I run? Could I hide? I zipped my anorak back up and considered barricading myself in the Wendy house. As I crawled sniper style towards the plastic door, the children started singing, Jack and Jill went up the hill. Now, there's a song, short, succinct, and with a clear health and safety message. Why on earth were these people in favour of going to the zoo when a mere trip up a hill caused one child to break his head and another to suffer from numerous undisclosed injuries? Luckily, after a quick burst of Humpty Dumpty, who, let's remember, died from sitting on a wall, they wandered outside to play in the sandpit. They must have changed their minds about going to the zoo. Disaster averted. So that's the kind of trauma I was dealing with. <laughs> As a three-year-old. So this was, here's a section from when I was just starting out. Um, I uh, 
you know, on a good week, I was making eight pounds from a joke on weekending, but uh, my main source of income was a, a faulty vending machine near where I lived because when I put 50p in for a marathon, it gave me a pound and a marathon. So that became my kind of main source of both food and income. But then the sad day came when they fixed the vending machine and uh, I had to had to go and stay with friends because I had no money. So I was sort of sleeping on different friends' floors. Uh, so <clears throat> this episode is called Snails. Staying at other people's houses sometimes presented a bigger problem than different pillows. One house had dry rot, wet rot, mold, spores, and a mouse situation. One morning, as I was making myself breakfast, I wondered what that strange smell was. My question was answered when my toast popped out of the toaster and, simultaneously, a flaming mouse was catapulted out of the other side. It was both spectacular and deeply upsetting. Another of the places I stayed in was infested with snails. I was scared of snails, so when I slept on the floor, I used to draw a line of salt around my whole body. It looked like the chalk outline of a murder victim, but it worked. I woke up one morning and my friend discovered a snail trail going across her pillow and then a gap where her head had been and then the snail trail resuming. I felt it would have been worse if the snail trail hadn't resumed after the gap. I also felt it was time to find my own place. So I've been talking to Georgia Pritchett. We've been talking about her memoir, My Mess is a Bit of a Life, Adventures in Anxiety which is out now in the UK from Faber. Georgia, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Neil Mason, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.